Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, August 5th, 2011. It's going to be a little different program again today. I'm not purposely trying to shake things up, it's just that something's kind of come to the fore, you know, as far as, you know... A discussion of a shot fired by Mark Driscoll um, that uh, I, I want to start to cover it. I want to cover it in depth, but we'll just kind of start to scratch the surface today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Okay, so about a week ago, um, a video went up on the Resurgence website, which is one of the, uh, you know, one of the websites that where Mark Driscoll is a contributor. And uh, in, the, in this video that went up, um, Driscoll spent some time talking about what he believes uh regarding what he I guess you can call it spirit led theology and uh it it's weird because um as somebody who's watched Driscoll's career and watched his theology one of the things that I don't understand about Driscoll and I'm really hoping the op- to get the opportunity to discuss this with him on the program just so you know I I have uh, filled out the appropriate media papers requesting an interview with uh, Driscoll here on Fighting for the Faith, and I hope he comes on the program because I, I really want to I want to have a dialogue about this because uh, he's Driscoll in some cases is 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 an enigma to me, and the reason why is because on the one hand uh, he he verbally embraces. Uh, you know, some of the major categories of r- reformed theology. And, and so he, he he identifies in, in, in you know, in the spectrum of theology, in, in the Calvinist spectrum. But then on the other hand, uh, he at the same time is, well, somewhat charismatic, uh, um, almost uh, into mysticism in some senses, postmodern charismatic kind of stuff. And so 
you know, it's it's one of those things where okay, how do you reconcile that with sola scriptura and some of the you know, the the primary theological categories of reformed Calvinistic theology? Now, here's the deal: I'm not a I'm not a Calvinist. Um, you know, uh, Lutherans f- fall into the greater banner of Reformation theology, and so we don't have, you know, let's, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, we don't have the same. Uh, way of looking at the the problem of the gifts of the Holy Spirit the way the Reformed do. And and so in this video, uh, Driscoll kind of, he, I think he, 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 he's questioning the right things, but his solution has me scratching my head. And, uh, and so it, it's created a, a buzz, a stir, a uh, you know, a, you know, a, a conversation, if you would. That sounds so postmodern, and that's just lame. But um, on the internet, about you know whether or not cessationism or uh, continuationism is, and and yeah, I um, anyway. So here's the deal. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is. Um, it, it, well, it's a little bit more advanced uh, of a topic, if you would, and uh, it's more nuanced and requires, uh, you know, a sharper a sharper pencil, if you would. And so, if you if you want to sharpen your pencils and follow along, let's do that. And what I'm going to do in the first hour today is I'm going to play for you the audio, the relevant portion of the audio from the video that uh, recently went up. That's kind of causing the stir, and it's. Uh, it's about 21 minutes long, and I'll pause at the appropriate places and comment um, because I, you know, I I have a different view of this than say a Phil Johnson or a John MacArthur or, or you know those guys. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple of articles uh, that are reposts of articles that were put on the Pyromaniacs blog uh, by Phil Johnson. He recently reposted them, I think, in light of uh, of this the renewed. Uh, conversation, debate, discussion, if you would, going on regarding cessationism, because in the in the greater reformed spectrum of theology, you've got guys like Wayne Grudem and C.J. Mahaney and others who uh, uh, they're they're similar to Driscoll in this sense. But as I listen to Driscoll and then re-listen to Driscoll. Um, yeah, there, there's some things there where I got I, I, my hand is going up. I'm going, wait, wait, what about this? Hey, hold, on, hold on a second. Do you got a passage for that? So anyway, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna listen to Driscoll's uh, audio, and just so you know, I, I, like I said, I, I have put in a petition, uh, a request. I have, uh, I, I have, well, uh, filled out the appropriate uh, Voganian paperwork, uh, including the pink goldenrod, the uh, light blue, and the white paper. Uh, carbon copies. Uh, I filled all of that out, uh, requesting an interview with uh, Mark Driscoll. That being said, I think that my chances of actually landing an interview with Mark Driscoll will be, well, at less than fifty percent for sure. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like when you when you watch the news and they say, "Hey, you know, we've got a thirty percent chance of rain." You're going, "Yeah, that means we're not going to get any rain." So, I, I I would say, well, just so you know, I am I'm working actively to try to get Mark Driscoll on the program to discuss these topics because I think this is a great conversation to have. And as a Lutheran, I have a different perspective than uh, than the Calvinists do. Uh, but anyway, so we'll see. Pray about it. Maybe I mean, maybe he'll surprise us all. Maybe he'll. I mean, I might actually die of a heart attack if he actually. If I get an email from him saying, "Yeah, I'll do the interview," <laughs> if I'd actually fall over dead. Um, so anyway, so but just so you know, that's where we're at. So 
today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, a little bit more heady. Uh, it's, that's all I can say. It's a little bit more heady. And uh, uh, just dive right in. And if you find yourself getting lost, well, go back and re-listen. And if you're not sure, look up some uh, articles on the Internet and spend some time researching and reading and, and stretch a little bit. It's It's kind of one of those things. So... And we'll consider this to be one of those in-house conversations within uh, the broader umbrella of Christendom and, uh, and regarding uh, the um, how are we to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in ministry today. I think that's probably the better way of putting it. So uh, without any further ado, here is uh, Mark Driscoll, and this is partway through this uh, video that's on there. And uh, here we go. So we believe in lower, lesser courts of authority, and we leave room for the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you will have resistance to this, and let me tell you why. This will be very controversial. It may be because you're worldly. Cessationism is worldliness. Okay, now, <laughs> that, that's a statement that's causing all the buzz. Cessationism apparently... In his mind is worldliness. Well, the devil's in the details. How is he defining that? Let's listen. Let me explain it to you. You've got Rene Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. In an effort to defend Christianity from some of its critics, he begins with his epistemological presupposition. Where will I start? I think, therefore I am. So the two founding, if, if you look at this like a Jenga game, the first two pieces that get laid down in something called the Modernistic Enlightenment Project, individualism and rationalism. I think, that's it. I'm an individual in my mind, my brain, the three pounds of meat between my ears. That is the essence of what it means to possess the Imago Dei, to be the image and likeness of God. Out of that, what invariably comes is the modern enlightenment project based upon individualism and rationalism. Now, uh, out of this comes as well skepticism. After a while, you start reading in the Bible, Jesus walked on water. You start becoming skeptical of supernatural claims. So guys like William Barclay come along and say, well, maybe he's walking on the shore of the water. And it looked like he was walking on the water. We're trying to find ways to explain away what the Bible says plainly. Because it doesn't fit cleanly within a modernistic, rationalistic uh, paradigm of thinking. Okay. Now, agreed so far. Uh, you kind of work with me here for a second. Yes, you can go back to the Enlightenment. Yes, you can go back to Locke, Barclay, Hume, and uh, those guys who really uh, you know, form the philosophical underpinnings of uh, of the American experiment, if you would, in in, in our uh, republic here. And you know, th these are these are the guys who helped uh, fuel the thinking that led to the American Revolution. Okay, no problem. And yes, some of the you know, so we're talking about modernistic rationalism modernistic rationalism now modernistic rationalism did uh find its way into uh reformation theological thinking both in lutheranism as well as calvinism i would argue that some of calvin you know, calvinism especially you know as it's influenced by zwingli and uh 
and other places, really there's, there is a rationalistic element to Calvinism uh, that I think is one of the, that explains some of the problems that exist in the theological system of Calvinism, at least as I'm looking at it from the outside. That's where I would put it. And uh, if you want to put your finger on it, it's it's the difference between the magisterial or ministerial use of reason. I think Calvinists fall more into the magisterial use of reason, especially as they believe that reason is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Um, whereas uh, the uh, as uh, the Lutheran position is more along the lines of, well, reason at times can be the devil's whore is kind of a funny way of putting it. But the idea there is is that uh, we don't we don't even trust our sanctified reason, and reason ministerially works, but not magisterially. So that those you know if you if you want to look those categories up, you got you're going to have to apply them. But it's weird here because in listening to Driscoll. He's going to philosophers, Hume and Berkeley, um, and Descartes. Um, yeah, all right, yes, but um, to to argue that Locke, Berkeley, and Hume are are and Descartes and these guys uh, are are somehow Calvinistic in their thinking, yeah, I, I I'm I'm worried here. So in that way, Christians start thinking more like Hume than C.S. Lewis. Hume is really the modern, rationalistic thinker who set in motion opposition to the supernatural, to the miraculous. Yes, he did. I mean, he back in his day, you can almost... Uh, you, we, we talk about the new atheists. Well, he, he, Hume was uh, the original atheist. He wasn't... He, you know, well, Hitchens and those guys are the new atheists and Hume was like the original and uh, and there were uh, you know Christians who capitulated to his philosophical arguments when they need not do it but mm. so it starts with rationalism individualism as part of modernism this leads to skepticism right if there is a god then god created the world and to use the language of al pacino and the devil's advocate he's now absentee landlord that's deism and that he's left us here and he's governing life as we know it by a set of laws deism but he's so sovereign that he's gone he's not transcendent and imminent he's just gone what happens then is the assumption is made that none of these natural laws can be violated therefore the supernatural is impossible if not Unlikely. This plays it. This is naturalistic. Uh, sorry, rationalistic naturalism at this point, which is the worldview of you know the uh, evolutionists. Itself out in three ways. Number one, there's atheism. There is no God. There is no supernatural. There's nothing beyond the physical, material world that can be objectively tested and retested according to scientific methodology. There is a vestige of modernism that tries to accommodate a spiritual aspect and it becomes deism. Where there is a God, but this God is not involved in our world. He doesn't break in and violate natural law. The supernatural is not possible. This is Thomas Jefferson who sits down in the White House with a set of scissors and cuts all the miracles out of the Bible and publishes something called the philosophy of Jesus Christ. 
This includes Unitarians. This includes very liberal mainline so-called Christian denominations who are basically deists. Right, but that's not really the heart of, of the original Calvinism, if you would. There is a God. He's far away. He doesn't have anything to do with us. And the miracles can all be explained away. They're primitive, superstition, myth, misunderstanding. So it goes to atheism, deism, and this will be controversial, cessationism. Now, not sure if I say, I'm not sure if I grant the connection. Now you know why I haven't said this publicly. I'm not sure I have a helmet big enough to deal with it. I'm going to get battered a lot. But I believe the result of modernistic worldliness in Christian form is hard cessationism. Okay, hard cessationism. Not sure who he's referring to at this point. Based upon how he's defined everything and set everything up, hard cessationism would be liberalism. Uh, it would be modernistic, mainline, denominational liberalism. And that is saying God could do a miracle, but he doesn't and he won't. But he could. So within that, God's not really speaking. God's not really working. And the supernatural gifts are not in operation. Healing, revelation, speaking in tongues, those kinds of things, they're over in the God used to box. Even though. Yeah, my question is how is he defining speaking in tongues at this point? What's his definition of speaking in tongues? Oh, I was reading this book that said he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so their argument even comes down to 1 Corinthians 13, which gets turned into origami. Right? When the perfect comes, the imperfect disappears, we'll see him face to face. Perfect is Jesus. The perfect is Jesus. But then what happens is, to defend a sort of modernistic, rationalistic, cessationistic position, we throw up the craziest kooks in the charismatic camp and say, well, you don't want that, do you? Uh, no. No, we don't. <laughs> if it's nothing or that, it's a real coin flip because neither is a real win. Yeah, the, I think the argument can be made, though, that the crazy kooks within the charismatic movement are actually the main line, are the mainstream of, charism, of the charismatic movement now. And there's a reason for that. It, it, it is that you've got a competing, you've got a competing source of revelation. We continue. So, again... Let me say this, it's, it's also that the charismatic kooks have really ruined it for the rest of us, and prosperity theology has made it even worse. Because now that charismatic theology and Pentecostal theology has largely associated itself with get-rich-quick schemes and greed and the love of mammon, it really puts us in a position where those of us who love the Bible and say, Miracles happen, and, and they'll make weird arguments too, like there is no re evidence of miracles in the early church. There are. Right? Pastor Justin Holcomb working on a book on this and gone through the early church fathers, and yeah, the supernatural continued. There was no 
breaking period. You've all been, you know, sort of lied to, I think, and the research has not been done well. Okay. Now, having read uh, the patristics, I, I, I understand where he's coming from here. Uh, when you read the writings of the church fathers and, and others, um, the miraculous, conti- at least in the minds of uh, the church fathers, continues on. Uh, you know, a simple example, uh, a simple example, uh, Augustine, uh, in, in writing against the Pelagians, kind of makes a, an aside note about a, a slave uh, who was illiterate, who prayed to God that God would give him the ability to read, and according to Augustine, uh, this this illiterate slave miraculously received the ability to read from God, and it it just didn't you know show, I mean this didn't even phase Augustine. It was just some kind of a side comment that he made uh, in his writings. So yes, when you read the writings of the Church Fathers, uh, it, it is never assumed that the miraculous has ended. Now, this kind of leads to the question is, what is cessationism? What is the correct understanding of cessationist? He says the hard cessationist, and he's pointing to those who are really informed by individualistic, modernistic, naturalistic you know, uh, concepts that are more philosophical rather than theological. And, uh, and that really ends up, puts you into the rationalistic modernistic liberalism but Mike you know which I don't think is really the heart and soul of uh, of Calvinism at all so yeah I my, my question is is you know how is he defining these terms because as an outsider who's you know, I'm not a Calvinist kind of looking in I'm questioning how he's setting this up because I'm wondering if if he's what he's arguing against exactly. I, that's kind of where, where, where hmm. But we don't want sort of a prosperity theology. We also don't want a theology that undermines my second point, complementarian ecclesiology. And where it really gets off line is when spiritual gifts are emphasized over spiritual fruit. There's a difference between spiritual giftedness and spiritual maturity. You could say, I'm a prophet. You're an immature, selfish, goofy prophet. <laughs> right? Uh, I, I know that's kind of a, a laugh line that he put in there. Um, but Mark, I, you know, I understand you know, what, what you're critiquing at this point, but the biblical, biblical categories are true prophet or false prophet. Um, just because somebody is immature and goofy doesn't automatically make them a false prophet. The question is whether or not they're truly hearing from God the Holy Spirit. So you, get, you just can't pull out the prophet, you know, T-shirt and walk around telling people what to do. Because in addition to spiritual gifts, we believe in spiritual fruit, spiritual character. We also believe in spiritual authority. And so the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets that even those who believe they have something from the Lord, it's tested and approved by the elders of the church. Uh, I got to stop right there. Um, See, this is where uh, as Lutheran, I go, it has to be tested and approved by the elders of the church. Let me give you a, let let me give you a problem here. Okay. Um, There are plenty of church councils that have met and uh, and what what they've come to the conclusion of is not correct. 
Okay, I would point to the Council of Trent as an example. I mean, if you if you want to say, well, that well that was a meeting of bishops. I are bishops not elders within the church? And at the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent anathematized the gospel itself. So here's what I see as as a problem. Let's let's put this into something that's not hypothetical, but let this 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 is make this a real example. Uh, Eric Dykstra up in uh, in Elk River, Minnesota, uh, claims that he's received a vision from God directly uh, to do church for the unchurched people. And he's got elders within his congregation who are saying, yes, he's received a vision from God. Am I to just say, throw my hands up and go, well, I guess it must be from God, the Holy Spirit? Or is the authority scripture itself? You see what I'm saying? Because if the elders are not are not basing their decision on the clear teachings of the word of God, then it, it, elders and groups of elders, uh, well, they can err. Uh, and uh, sometimes they're set up to err on purpose so that they don't come to the biblical conclusion because a lot of these seeker-driven guys, they surround themselves with sycophants and yes-men. So, um, yeah, we've got a problem here. Um, the authority has to come back to uh, to the Word of God. Otherwise, we, you know, I see all kinds of problems. So, again, the Spirit-filled is under the complementarian, which is ultimately under the Reformed theology. Somebody says they've experienced something, seen something, got a revelation of something. If the elders disagree, the answer is no. And if it's not in line with Christ-centered, God-exalting biblical theology, then it's to be rejected. Yeah, no, see, I, I, it, it, plain and simple, if it does not jive with the clear, revealed word of God, the answer is no, whether or not the elders say yes or not. But we're not to treat prophecies with what? Contempt. Contempt. Certain theological systems, by definition, do. And we know there will be false prophets and false teachers and false apostles. The Bible tells us that it's not just shepherds and sheep. There's also wolves, Yep. which requires elders in the church, godly, qualified, competent, capable, biblical, humble male leaders to be the umpires making the decisions on these issues and how the gifts are practiced in the church. So what I would like to argue for is spirit-filled theology. And I think this helps us get away from modernistic, rationalistic thinking. Okay, now stop. Whatever you think about whatever what he's going to say next, one of the things you, I'm, I'm going to do is I'm going to give Driscoll credit for wrestling with this because there's clearly a problem with ecclesiastical practice within American evangelicalism uh, and in reform circles, no problem, you know, admitting that. And I, he's wrestling with this. I think there's some theological nuances here that he's missing as a result of it. I still think he, the, I think his solution actually comes up short. But uh, listen in again. In addition to cessationism, charismatic theology suffers from some of the same errors of modernism. Right, functional cessationism. Is, is really about the mind, but functional charismatic theology is really about the heart. One is really about what you think, the other is about what you feel. And what happens in that is that 
wrongly held charismatic and Pentecostal and even continuationistic theology, it becomes incredibly self-centered. It's about my gift, my experience, my word, my contribution, my authority. Yep, that's correct. That's a, that's a correct assessment. Yes. What we're talking about in a spirit-filled theology is different. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. Right now, I'm halfway through preaching the entire book of Luke. It's going to take a few years. And Luke is a, a prequel, and the book of Acts is a sequel, both written by Luke, this historian and medical doctor whose traveling companions, perhaps physician to and friends with the Apostle Paul. And uh, Luke, as you know, is funded, I believe, by Theophilus, a wealthy, affluent benefactor. And he permits uh, Luke to take the time to go interview the eyewitnesses and to put together under the ministry of the Holy Spirit a perfect, inerrant accounting of the life of Jesus in Luke and the ministry of his people in the book of Acts, prequel and sequel. And I see this as biblical theology, and I've said this before, so if you've heard it, I apologize. Um, But the way I see it is this, there's a lot of supernatural, miraculous ministry happening around the birth of Jesus. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. An angel shows up to speak to her husband, Zechariah. Additionally, Uh, Mary is enabled to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. An angel shows up to articulate this to Joseph. There's a lot of supernatural, angelic, Holy Spirit work around the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born, and then we see him grow up. Uh, He grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God. And then this significant event happens at the baptism of Jesus Christ. And at the baptism of Jesus, you all know the story, the entire Trinitarian God of the Bible is present. God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Son is brought up out of the water. And God the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And this is the public declaration, inauguration of the ministry of Jesus. And this is God's way of saying, he's the one. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He hadn't been preaching, teaching, healing yet. He hadn't died and risen and atoned for the sin of the world. Jesus was the beloved Son of God, the second member of the Trinity from eternity past. And God the Father says, He's the one. He's the one. And then in one of the other Gospels, I think it's Mark's Gospel, as this baptismal account of Jesus is told, there's an interesting additional piece that Mark contributes, and that is that the Holy Spirit rested upon Jesus in this continuing, ongoing um, ministerial capacity so that we are to see that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Luke says. As you keep reading the Gospel of Luke, it says Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit out of the wilderness, that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, that he keeps coming back to remind us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. Now, I don't want to get too far down this theological rabbit trail, but the question is often posed, how did Jesus do his ministry and life on the earth? He's, you know, hypostatic union, one person, two natures, fully man, fully God. We believe that. We believe that. But the question is, how does Jesus cast out demons? 
How does Jesus perform miracles? How does Jesus preach and teach with authority? Some will say, well, he did that as God. Jesus on the earth was continually God, unceasingly God. But, let me make a caveat. Sometimes he works out of his deity. Okay, now stop. I'm going to point something out here. Okay, um, <clears throat> if you haven't heard the series that we've done on Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ, you need to go when you need to listen to this. He, here, immediately, I, I, I'm hearing a problem. This argument is actually... Uh, an historian argument. He's arguing from an historian view of the two natures of Christ. Not a good thing. Um, now, I'm not saying that he's a heretic, that he em- embraces historianism. I think he just hasn't thought out his Christology properly here so that uh, he has you know, the correct understanding of the Incarnation, especially as it's laid out in uh, the Athanasian Creed. And if you're, you're not sure what I'm talking about, go read the Athanasian Creed. There's an entire section in there that lays out the proper understanding of uh, of Christ's incarnation. There's not two Christs, there's one Christ. He is the God-man. And so when you hear, when you, you, when you hear somebody or a pastor arguing, you know, that Jesus did this via one nature or another, yeah, that's a, that's that's you know that's really c- getting into a Nestorian view of uh, Christology, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's falling flat here. Um, yeah, so you know, so uh, yeah, this is not good. Out of his divinity, for example, when he forgives sin, that's actually the accusation that's made. Jesus, how can you forgive sin? Only God can commit sin. I mean, the psalmist said it rightly: "Against you only, Lord God, have I sinned." We sin against God. God's the one that needs to forgive us. When Jesus forgives someone, he's doing the work of God. But Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, was also tempted. We know that Jesus also suffered. And he wasn't just faking it. He did so fully human. And this is, this is one of those great mysteries of our faith. Fully God, fully man. Jesus really did suffer. He really was tempted, even though he never did sin. And on occasion, he worked out of his divinity, but he never did so to benefit himself. He did so to benefit others, but not himself. He lived as we live. Hungry, tempted, criticized, suffering, bleeding, dying. How did he do it? I would submit to you that he did not lose his divinity, he retained it fully, but he didn't continually avail himself to the full use of his divine attributes. I'll give you an example. God is omnipresent. In the incarnation, Jesus was in a place. God is immutable and unchanging. Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and faith. Okay, yeah, no, this, again, he's, he's arguing like an historian. Favor with men and God. God doesn't learn anything. He's all-knowing and omniscient. Jesus, in humbling himself, becoming a man, he learned as we learn. We see him studying Mm -hmm. with the other leaders at the temple, for example. Yep. So how did he do it? He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now stop. Okay. This is where... I basically put the brakes on and say, hold the train there, uh, Mark. Do you have clear 
passages in the scripture that answer this question straight up so that we can have a clear doctrine that says how Jesus did the things he did was by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. It was spirit-filled ministry that Jesus was doing even though he was the God-man. This is where I, I immediately... Immediately, it's like, whoa, before we start creating a theology like this, there's only one way you can do this. And that is as if you have a clear set of passages that unambiguously state that Jesus did what he did, not by availing himself of his divine power, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. So, I, I mean, immediately I want to stop the train and say, okay, you better back this up with clear passages. Because at, the, at this moment, I'm not convinced. As a result of it, this is where, this is the point at which um, if, we were track, if we were on a train track, okay, this is the point at which Driscoll has thrown a switch and there's a spur rail that has, that has come into view and he's taken the train off of the off of the main line onto the spur, okay. And um, I'm not convinced that the text teaches this. Now, it's not that I'm just trying to be skeptical or contrarian; it's that I'm immediately just nervous about this whole thing, you know, for very good reasons. And that is, is that over and over and over again, I, we want to get behind. Jesus's ministry and answer the question how did he do this how did he do that and like somehow we can we can figure this out but without clear passages that say this is how he did it you we're not given to know that so immediately I'm I'm just yeah I mean for instance I mean if, if this is correct then I have to come to the conclusion that Jesus was able to walk on water because God the Holy Spirit miraculously was working at that point so that he could walk on the water. You see what I'm saying? I'm I'm getting I'm getting um a, just a smidge on the skeptical side here. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus verses 5 through 11, Jesus humbling himself, yes. taking upon the form of a servant and by the power of the Holy Spirit, living his life. Okay, now let's take a look at Philippians 2. Maybe this it, 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 it answers the question. Let's take a look. Philippians chapter 2. I know the passage he's referring to. Okay, so do not, and we're going to read it in context. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind in among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, or nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee in, uh, should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to point this out. Nowhere in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 is the Holy Spirit mentioned as the means by which Jesus did anything. 
We continue. Here's what it means to be spirit-filled. It means to live a life patterned after Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where we get in trouble with charismatic and Pentecostal theology is we, we lift up the holy man of God, the anointed man. If his name is not Jesus, it's the wrong man. It's the wrong man. Jesus is the perfect man. Jesus is the God-man. Right? Jesus is the Savior. He's also the example. He saves us from sin, sends us the Holy Spirit, so we might live a life patterned after His. This is a life of courage and humility. It's a life of courage that is willing to, as Jesus did, be fully committed to the mission of God, and a ministry and a life of humility, it's not our power that compels us and it's not our glory that we long for. Now, what this allows us to do is have a Christ-centered, spirit-filled theology. And as you read the storyline of Luke, it then goes to Acts. As you go to the book of Acts, uh, Luke, this master storyteller inspired by the Holy Spirit, He shows the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins as our penal substitute Savior. Believe all of it, gladly. And then Jesus says, you need to go tell people about what I've done. You need to be my witnesses. You need to go get this good news out. But he says, don't go just yet. First, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then we see the Holy Spirit descending on the church on the day of Pentecost, just as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at the day of his baptism. Now, this is not an accident. Luke, I would say ultimately the Holy Spirit through Luke, is showing us that Jesus' life and ministry was done by the Holy Spirit. The church's ministry is supposed to continue and be sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I agree that the church's ministry is sustained by the power and work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said that he would send the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would convict the sin, of the world of sin and unbelief. Yeah, I, I'm, I completely agree that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul would argue, that the Holy Spirit gives gifts for the building and edifying of the body of Christ to the different individual members of the church. No problem with that. You know, okay, but that, I don't know. Again, where's the clear passages that say that Jesus did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm just having a hard time here. And we're doing the ministry of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And it's communal, not individual. The Holy Spirit descends upon the church, empowering and enabling the church for mission. To be spirit-filled is to be like Jesus, together on mission. Yeah, um... Yeah, I I would want to see the clear passages that, 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 that undergird that statement. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. Now, if you explain this to your people, say, I want you to be spirit-filled, they're like, oh, you're freaking me out. Like Jesus. Okay, that sounds great. <laughs> you see the difference? Otherwise, what happens in Pentecostal theology 
And charismatic theology is sometimes the cross is really secondary and the day of Pentecost is really the big deal. It's not sometimes, it's like all the time. And what happens on the day of Pentecost is that the work of the cross is applied by the power of the Spirit. So it's not a... The work of the cross is proclaimed. ...greater event, it's the application of the greatest event, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That allows us to be cross-centered, Christ-centered, mission-focused, spirit-filled. That's what we mean by spirit-filled theology. This includes as well, and I'll say this briefly, an understanding that as you are filled with the Holy Spirit, as God's people in community, under authority, on mission, you will encounter the demonic. Reformed guys don't know what to do with the demons. Yeah, I, again, which Reformed guys are you talking about? Um, yeah, maybe you're, you've been hanging with a different set of reform guys than I have, but, uh, you know, I, I would look at my friends, uh, Mike Horton, Kim Riddlebarger, uh, as, you know, as two examples of guys that don't stick their head in the sand and are completely flummoxed and perplexed as to what to do with the demonic. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I think Horton and Riddlebarger represent what I consider the beating heart of uh, of uh, Reformed theology right now, and uh, I don't see those guys as you know wringing their hands, going, "Oh well, you know, what do we do about the demonic?" I'm not sure. Let's just stick our heads in the sand. Yeah, again, who, which Reformed guys are you talking about? We don't know. We say things like, "We're against them." That's basically <laughs> that's basically our demonology. We don't like them. Okay, great. Uh, that's a good place to start. Again, that I, the, the, that's not the Kim Riddlebarger and Michael Horton that I know. The... But we don't know what to do with the demonic. We don't know what to do with people who are oppressed. We don't know what to do with people who are suicidal. We don't know what to do with people who are believing habitual lies and accusations and condemnations. Again, who are you talking about? We struggle with the demonic. And so what happens in the reform world, it's all the flesh and the world. We don't know what to do with the devil, to use Martin Luther's distinction between those three sources of spiritual opposition. So one of the areas that is sort of culminating and ruminating is that what does it really mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And as we're on mission and we see people who don't just have just theological or just psychological problems, like they've got spiritual problems, what do we do? Does the Bible have anything for them? And this is what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus and the early church. As God's people are filled with the Spirit on mission like Jesus, they have demonic opposition. And it's real. And some of you church planners don't believe that. You just think, if I call people to repent of sin and preach the Bible, it's going to go great. It will, and there will be great opposition. You really do have an enemy. The words warfare and battle in the Bible are not an overstatement. It's real. So, Reformed theology, complementarian relationships, spirit-filled lives. I feel inclined to say one thing too. Tomorrow I'm going to unpack all the teams on this. But you reform guys, especially you who are more Presbyterian, you tend... Is that liberal Presbyterian? ...to ignore the Holy Spirit and attribute everything the Spirit does to the gospel. The gospel has power. The gospel saves. The gospel, gospel, gospel. Only if applied by the Holy Spirit. 
And so you can't just talk about everything the gospel does because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, people are blind, hard-hearted, deaf, resistant, stubborn, totally depraved. Yes. So be careful. You're not always just saying the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Make sure to teach your people the gospel with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's uh, that's Driscoll's um, discussion on the topic, and um, I I don't. You know, it's problematic because I I'm not sure who he's who who he's really critiquing. Um, the reform guys that he's describing here are not the reform guys that I know uh, at all. Uh, and uh, the, the the reform guys who are who are, have been my friends for the last twenty years, um, so I, I'm I'm a little bit perplexed, and then I'm a little bit I'm more than a little bit perplexed about this theology that he's concocting, and uh, that I think on some levels has an Nestorian uh, Christology, and on another level, uh, uh, it. it, it again, I, if you want to make the case that Jesus did what he did. Uh, not because he was the God-man, but because uh, he only was able to do what he did because the Holy Spirit gave him, you know, the the power to do it. I, I need the clear passages. I I want to see this theology fleshed out from clear, clear, unambiguous passages. Because yeah, this whole thing is foreign to me. And uh, and then the other part of it is is that that whole idea that. Uh, that that somehow the you know uh, 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 a guy who's receiving visions from the Holy Spirit has it confirmed by elders? Yeah, no. It. I'm sorry that the authority isn't the elders. The authority is the Word of God. So, at least that's where I'm at at the moment. But I'm 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 truly hoping that uh, that Driscoll comes on the program to discuss these things further because I mean there's just a ton of follow up questions and uh, and clarifying questions that I'd like to ask him about this because. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not even sure if he's correctly defined cessationism. So anyway, we're going to we're going to take a break and uh, pay some bills. And when we come back, I'm going to read a couple of articles by uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is, you know, kind of a different format. I'm not going to do a sermon review today. Um, so, you know, that's I'm going to read the two things from Phil Johnson that I think uh, at least give us a better anchor of 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 the cessationist continuationist uh, controversy within the greater reformed spectrum. But man, I could truly use your emails uh, if you have a better take on this and a, and a, a deeper understanding. <laughs> this is a Lutheran looking in on a reformed conversation and scratching his head, going, "Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I get it all." So, anyway, uh, there. <laughs> That's where we're at. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. What are you saying? You out there! I'm supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no sense, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! 
And a complete waste of my time, I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. We're back. Warning, if you're going to come up with a corrective, make sure that you don't build a straw man. you got to properly represent and define things before you offer a critique. I don't think Driscoll quite did that. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio, and we truly do need your help during the, well, uh, <clears throat> Well, uh, during the lean, mean <laughs> summer months, yeah, it reminds you of a of a dry, scorching wind and a famine of yeah. Well, you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, well, uh, summer months are kind of tough for us. So if uh, if you would have mercy on us and uh, and visit our website and uh, support us financially, it would be greatly appreciated. And let me say thank you in advance. So visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see two friendly yellow buttons when you get in there. One says donate, one says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute six ninety five every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now what I'm going to do is uh, Phil Johnson of the uh, Pyromaniacs blog, teampyro.blogspot.com. Uh, uh, Phil is, uh, uh, you know, is a Calvinist with whom I have uh, well, just the greatest respect and, uh, and, a, and a great relationship, uh, working relationship. So, uh, I, you know, he, he really knows his stuff. He's not a slouch. And, uh, and uh, he's uh, reposted two posts that he posted back in, uh, in, well, in like 2007, one was from October of 2007, and the other one goes back to November, early November of 2007. So, and uh, the uh, the first is kind of part one, part two, and this is dealing with the, uh, the uh, internal conversation regarding cessationism versus continuationism in 
in the greater Reformed camp. Now, Lutherans have a different way of approaching this, but, um, you know, again, I, I point this out because th- there's some very, very, very good reasons to critique and to not look, um, well, let's say, to not look favorably on what's going on in the charismatic movement. And it's not just on the extreme end of things. I, I think that there's a there's a theological breakdown uh, with those uh, who, well, anyway, I'll let Phil Johnson make the case. The name of this first post is entitled, If You Can't Say Something Nice. And it's a response to uh, recurring complaints from the world-famous uh, author and British blogger, pundit medical professional, and charismatic ombudsman, Dr. Adrian Warnock. Okay, So if Phil writes, he says, uh, the esteemed Dr. Warnock has made yet another post objecting to the look and feel of our polemic against some stylish doctrines and ministry philosophies which have borne notoriously rotten fruits. <laughs> Great thesis. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> one of these days when I grow up, I'll learn how to write like Phil. Anyway, he says, specifically, he suggests in last Monday's pyro, uh, pyro post, I ought not to have criticized Willow Creek's pragmatic program-driven ministry philosophy without first saying something really nice and affirmative about them. Phil, um, <clears throat> I want to point this out. Um, it, I <laughs> this, this is one of the things that frustrates me about, uh, I don't know if it's something in the water over there in Great Britain, but uh, um, I've run up against this myself, and uh, we, I think we've talked about my personal frustrations uh, in this regard. There's something about the British that, uh, like, even if you're taking on something as notoriously rotten as fascism, they first want you to say something kind about it. <laughs> so, anyway... <clears throat> Phil goes on. He says, these are, of course, issues we have discussed with the good doctor before. I was going to let it pass this time, but he emailed me inviting me inviting my reply. So let's analyze Dr. Warnock's view of discernment a little more closely. He insists that, quote, we really must be looking for the good in people, especially in those who have not denied important aspects of the gospel. Note, in this context, Dr. Warnock is not talking about personal relationships between individual Christians. He is setting forth a principle for how we critique and interact with leaders of new movements, teachers of novel doctrines, purveyors of new philosophies of ministry. Let's call it Warnock's first rule of discernment. In Dr. Warnock's estimation, my failure to go out of my way to say anything positive about Willow Creek, quote, seemed at least to him to be implying that Willow Creek has absolutely nothing to teach us. I said nothing like that, of course, and it's a wholly unwarranted conclusion. From what I did say, it's also quite irrelevant to any point I was making. On the other hand, let's be completely candid. Even if I did go out of my way to catalog everything I like about the Willow Creek model, it would indeed be a very short list. In fact, as I ponder the question even now, I'm hard-pressed to think of anything truly distinctive about Willow Creek's approach to ministry that I could honestly say advances the agenda of Christ's kingdom. Willow Creek's underlying philosophy is fundamentally pragmatic, not biblical. By their own admission, it is now statistically clear that their strategy does not produce authentic disciples and therefore fails even the pragmatic test. So it's a bad ministry model, even by its own definition of what's good. More importantly, the movement also falls short 
uh, by every biblical standard I can think of. Its influence among evangelicals is uh, for uh, for more than three decades has been seriously, consistently, and I believe demonstrably bad in numerous ways. It's about to get even worse. So it would frankly bother my conscience to leave the impression, even inadvertently, that I think there's anything worth singling out as wholesome or beneficial or worthy of my affirmation in that. To illustrate, there may be uh, nutritious scraps of food garbage in a compost heap, but if something in you compels you to go out of your way to point them out to an undiscerning toddler, well then, shame on you. However, according to Dr. Warnock, quote, if we fail to recognize something as being good and helpful and true, we fail in our discernment as much as as if we blindly accepted everything in a naive way. Okay, but what if the thing evaluated is really not good and helpful and true? Because as, and this is the crucial point where I uh, take issue with Dr. Warnock's position, the fact that a person or movement has commendable qualities, even lots of them, does not necessarily make the thing itself good and helpful and true. Let's call that Johnson's fifth axiom of common sense. Judas, for example, was apparently a very frugal man. Do we need to congratulate him for that every time we condemn his treachery? The Judaizers' doctrine, as far as we know, perfect was perfectly compatible with every point of doctrine enumerated in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in the de- definition of Chalcedon. If you were at the count, uh, if you were to count all the true propositions. The Judaizers affirmed regarding Christian essentials, there is little doubt that they would outweigh the false propositions in their system by a very large percentage. In fact, the Judaizers' one significant difference with Paul boiled down to a single proposition about the Ordu Salutis, that they taught that good works proceed rather than follow justification. But as Paul labored to demonstrate in Galatians, one apparently small technical difference like that can sometimes does make the difference between the true gospel and a different damning false gospel. Thus, you'll never find Paul saying anything positive about the Judaizers. Moreover, in Galatians 2, Paul publicly rebuked Peter just for treating that false gospel like a mere misdemeanor, even though Peter himself was an apostle of Christ who completely, unconditionally, and unreservedly affirmed the true gospel. Yet Paul did not pillow his public rebuke or even his retelling of it in in a lot of superfluous affirmations of Peter's good intentions or his likable personality or his commitment to Christ or whatever. It was a sharp and completely unqualified public rebuke, and under the circumstances, it was warranted. One's tone is not always the most important factor in raising a caution about false doctrine. In short, Warnock's first rule of discernment isn't biblical. Given the enormity of the errors we are talking about in the Willow Creek philosophy, Dr. Warnock's objection to straightforward criticism of that movement strikes me as terribly misguided and question-begging and inconsistent with what he himself says in other contexts. For example, is Willow Creek's commitment to important aspects of the gospel truly beyond question and criticism? I certainly don't think so. After all, they are sponsoring a major conference unveiling their new agenda with Brian McLaren as the keynote speaker. He is notorious for having portrayed the principle of penal substitution as, quote, one more injustice in the cosmic equation and divine child abuse. You know, there is hardly a single gospel-related doctrine that was 
highlighted in the Protestant Reformation that McLaren has not somehow questioned or attacked, and the atonement is central to all the others. As a matter of fact, based on Dr. Warnock's own steadfast and excellent defense of penal substitutionary atonement, I'm mystified as to why he objects to a shrill and unqualified warning about the direction Willow Creek seems headed. My strong suspicion is that Dr. Warnock uh, Dr. Warnock's most basic objection to my discernment style has nothing whatsoever to do with any of his concerns I've raised about Willow Creek. I think the root of his real disagree with, disagreement with me lies in our difference of opinion on the charismatic question. Usually, when he makes critical points about Team Pyro, that's the central issue he brings up, and this latest dust-up is no exception. But that's a whole different issue, and here... Dr. Warnock's complaint becomes somewhat more nuanced. I want to answer that part of his argument, too, but that will have to wait for another day. So I'll be back to follow up, uh, follow this up tomorrow, if not before. So that's kind of setting the ground rules here for uh, you know this next thing. Now, you're what if we're talking about the charismatic question, why start there? Why? Because this is part uh, that was part one of a two part thing. And the charismatic question really is at the core of of the seeker-driven movement and its ecclesiastical um, methodologies. It really is at the core. And what we just heard from Mark Driscoll, I think, really gets to the heart of the matter. And that's the thing that needs to be discussed. Because over and again, we're hearing from pastors who are part of the Acts 29 network. We're hearing from uh, seeker-driven guys you know, in the Willow Creek Association, as well as the Purpose Driven Network or affiliated with Leadership Network. Uh, this idea that God has a specific vision uh, that he wants to give to a pastor, he wants to reveal to a pastor, and then what happens is is that they claim that this is their vision that they got from God. So the charismatic question is the thing that's on the table, and uh, and I think that's really what's at the heart of this. So now part two, uh, it sh- the name of it is, should type R charismatics get a free pass? Type R means reformed. So... Uh, the uh, subheading is, does the fact that we are together for the gospel necessitate, necessitate our being together or even silent on the matter of charismatic claims as well? So, uh, <clears throat> Phil Johnson writes, he says, A prodigious wacko fringe has always been one of the charismatic movement's most prominent features. In little more than a century, the Pentecostal and charismatic movements have spun off so many bad doctrines and bizarre characters that I have a thick dictionary in my office just to help me keep track of them all. Furthermore, I'm convinced it's not just some kind of fantastic cosmic coincidence that has loaded the movement with an unusually high number of charlatans and heretics. I've suggested on more than one occasion that a major reason the charismatic movement has produced more than its fair share of aberrant behavior is because the distinctive doctrines of charismatic belief foster gullibility while constantly seeding the movement with all kinds of whimsy. Specifically, the charismatic belief that it's normative for spirit-filled Christians to receive extra-biblical divine revelation through various mystical means has opened the door for all kinds of mischief. Let me read that sentence again. The charismatic belief that it's normative for spirit-filled Christians to receive extra-biblical divine revelation through various mystical means has opened the door for all kinds of mischief. And by the way, that is one of the core um, ideas 
in the seeker-driven methodology, the idea that the God, the Holy Spirit, is going to give the vision-casting pastor a extra-biblical revelation on how to do church, that's at the core, that's the center of the seeker-driven methodology. Now I continue with Phil's uh, um, article. He says, I would not for a moment deny that there are some relatively sane and sensible charismatic who love scripture and generally teach sound doctrine while avoiding most of their movement's worst errors. I think they represent a fairly small minority of the worldwide charismatic community, but they do exist. A few of them are good friends, even longtime friends of mine. I have friends, for example, in the Calvary Chapel movement, which is a mildly is mildly charismatic in doctrine, but whose worship is generally more Bible-centered than even the typical non-charismatic, seeker-sensitive church. As a matter of fact, my chief concern about the Calvary Chapel movement would not even be their advocacy of charismatic views, but their increasingly aggressive campaign against Calvinism. That's not all. I have warm affection and heartfelt respect for most of the best-known Reformed charismatic leaders, including C.J. Mahaney, Wayne Grudem, and Sam Storms. Let's call them Type R, that's Reformed Charismatics. I've greatly benefited from major aspects of their ministry, and I regularly commend resources from them that that I have found helpful. By the way, in this list, I would also put John Piper. Um, I've corresponded with the world-famous Brit uh, blogger Adrian Warnock for at least 15 years now and had breakfast with him on two occasions, and I like him very much. I'm sure we agree on far far more things than we disagree about, and I'm also certain that uh, on matters that we agree on, starting with the meaning of the cross, are a lot more important than the issues we disagree on, which are all secondary matters. But that is not to suggest that the things we disagree on are non-issues. Candor and not a lack of charity requires me to state this conviction plainly. The belief that extra-biblical revelation is normative does indeed regularly and systematically breed willful gullibility, not discernment. Even the more sane and sober type R charismatics are not totally exempt from the tendency. Remember that Paul Cain and the Kansas City Prophets found an amazing amount of support from reformed charismatics on both sides of the Atlantic, even after it was clear to more objective minds that the prophets were regularly and systematically issuing false prophecies. And that fact ought to have been very clear. In 1989, the senior Kansas City prophet Bob Jones acknowledged that he could claim an accuracy rate of no higher than two-thirds. By 1991, Jones was utterly discredited because of his own sexual misconduct with women who claimed to have come to him seeking prophetic counseling. Shortly after that, in 1992, John MacArthur, Lance Quinn, and I met with Paul Kane and Jack Deere in John MacArthur's office at Jack Deere's request. Deere wanted to try to convince John MacArthur that the charismatic movement, especially the Vineyard branch, was on a trajectory to make doctrinal soundness and biblical integrity the hallmarks of third-wave charismatic practice. He brought Cain along ostensibly so that we could see for ourselves that Cain was a legitimate prophet with a profound gifting. 
but Kane was virtually incoherent that day. Lance Quinn remarked to me immediately afterward that it seemed as if Kane had been drinking heavily. In retrospect, it seems a fair assumption that this may indeed have been the case. Even Deer apologized for Kane's strange behavior that day, but Deer seemed to want us to assume it was because the spirit was upon Kane in some unusual way. They both admitted to us that Kane's prophecies were wrong at least as often as they were right. When we cited that as sufficient reason not to accept any of their prophecies at face value, they cited Wayne Grudem's view on the New Testament prophecy as justification for ignoring the errors of prophecies already proven false while given credence to still more questionable pronouncements. That meeting was extremely eye-opening for me. Deer was unable to answer basic questions about certain practices. Lance and I had personally observed him participating in at the Anaheim Vineyard just a few weeks before that meeting. Specifically, we asked him about two prophets whose public words of knowledge in the morning service were flatly contradictory. The dueling prophets were apparently using their gifts to air out a dispute over some decision the church leaders had recently made. Deer acknowledged that the prophecies that morning were contradictory and that he could not explain why John Wimber let both prophecies stand without a word of explanation or clarification. He seemed to shrug off our concern by speculating that perhaps even Wimber wasn't sure which prophecy, if either one, was true. Again, he appealed to Grudem, perhaps the most theologically sound of all the charismatics, as justification for accepting the two prophets' gifting as legitimate anyway. I left that meeting amazed that anyone would give credence to such prophets, but several of the best-reformed charismatic leaders, all citing Grudem for authority, continued to give credence to Cain, the Kansas City prophets and other men like them, for a long, long time. Some of the reformed charismatics who lent Paul Cain undue credibility, did not really renounce him as a prophet until about 12 years later when his personal sins finally came to light. And it may be stretching things to say everyone concerned actually renounced Cain's supposed prophetic gift, and even then, he has lately made something of a comeback. Jack Deere's book still touts Cain as a super-prophet, and the book was recently released in Romania where it has left a massive amount of confusion in its wake. Wayne Grudem's endorsement of the book remains unaltered. I recently wrote him to ask if Kane's moral failure would spur him to modify or remove his endorsement of Deer's uh, paean to, to Kane, and Grudem wrote to assure me that his endorsement of the book still stands. As long as Reformed charismatics justify the practice of encouraging people to proclaim prophecies that are unverified and unverifiable, and which frequently prove to be wrong, I'll stand by the concern I expressed. Even the very best of charismatics sometimes foster unwarranted and unreasonable gullibility. And gullibility about whether God has really spoken or not is seriously dangerous. When a false belief is truly dangerous and comes replete with the kind of long and dismal track record extra-biblical revelation brings with it, it's not uncharitable for those who see the danger and are truly concerned about it to sound a shrill warning rather than humming a gentle lullaby. 
My charismatic friend, Dr. Warnock, insists that I have been uncharitable because I have stated my opinion about the dangers of charismatic doctrine without explicitly exempting him and others whom he likes from my warning against gullibility. It makes him uncomfortable to read such things on our blog as often as we post them, even though the vast majority of our 2007 posts on the charismatic issue were in fact made at his behest. I have to say, in reply to his appeal to how our posts make him feel, while he declines to give any rational or reasonable explanation for why he thinks our candor must be motivated by a lack of charity, is an echo of the very tendency that I think is so dangerous in the charismatic mindset. I do realize that some people are uncomfortable with such a firm stance against the charismatic position. I'm equally uncomfortable with the charismatic position itself. Let's both remember that our respective comfort levels are not a reliable gauge of our brother's charity or lack thereof, and let's try to focus on the actual issue under discussion. Great post by uh, Phil Johnson, and, and let me just add to that. Um, Frank Turk wrote an open letter, quite a long open letter, to uh, to Mark Driscoll, um, and and I think I, rather than reading the whole letter, if you want to read it, you can find it on the Pyromaniacs blog. Uh, Phil uh, Frank Turk gave what I consider a a very good response, formal response to what you heard in the first hour of fighting for the faith. Um, from a guy who is not a charismatic, and he did so in the form of, of affirmations and denials. And I think that Frank Turk's affirmations and denials give us a better frame uh, of understanding of what what is cessationism and what isn't cessationism within a Reformed theological context. And so I wanted to read those for you, okay? So put your thinking caps back on, go back to the first hour where... Uh, Mark Driscoll is putting out what he considers a spirit-led theology that isn't cessationist but is complementarian in its understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, Again, with this understanding that the seeker-driven movement, and I think Driscoll truly is a representative of that, believes that the pastor can receive, is, is, is actually expects the pastor to receive an extra-biblical direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit on how to do church in their particular town. That's at the root, ground zero, of the seeker-driven movement. You, you hear it in spades in Dykstra, and I think in, it, there, there, you know, that Driscoll, on some level, still actually represents that view himself, and I, I think his, his uh, view on the gifts may be trying to make accommodations for that particular point. But I hope to ask him this personally so we can go forward. But uh, uh, Frank Turk gave a a kind of affirmation denial back and forth that I think gives a a really good framework for better understanding the the nuances here. And I wanted to pass those along. So Frank Turk says, I affirm that Reformation theology requires the personal action of God, the Holy Spirit, for the life of the church. I deny that this work necessarily includes speaking in tongues, as in Acts 2, as well as in so-called private prayer languages, healing the sick or raising the dead by explicit command, prophecy in the sense that Isaiah and John the Baptist were prophets, or in any other sign and wonder-like exhibition. That is, I deny that these actions are necessary for the post-apostolic church to function as God intended. He then says, I affirm that miracles happen today. 
no sense in prayer and believing in a sovereign God if he's not going to ever be sovereign, right? However, I deny that there is any man alive today who is gifted to perform miracles as Jesus and the apostles were gifted to perform miracles. Turk then says, I affirm that God is utterly capable of and completely willing to demonstrate signs and wonders at any time, in any place, according to his good pleasure and for his great purpose. But I deny that this activity is common, normative, necessary, or in the best interest of God's people to be seen as common, normative, and or necessary. God, in fact, warns us against seeking signs rather than the things signified Uh, repeatedly in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He then says, I affirm the real presence of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ, as Jesus said he would be present in John 13 through 15. I deny that this means that all believers or even all local churches will be equipped with apostles called and equipped as the twelve and Paul were called and equipped. A telling example of is the role of the apostles in delivering scripture to the church. He then says, I affirm that the normative working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church begins with conviction of sin and regeneration and continues through sanctification and through the outworking of personal gifts. See Galatians 5, 22 through 23, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, for the edification of the local church. I deny that explicitly supernatural outworkings or events, uh, or events the Bible calls signs and wonders are either normative or necessary for the ongoing life of the church. He then says, I affirm the uniqueness of the office of apostle in the founding of the church, and I deny the necessity of of apostles for the ongoing life of the church. I affirm that leadership in the church is a task wholly empowered by the Holy Spirit to men meeting the scriptural qualifications, and that the objectives of this leadership are wholly defined by the Holy Spirit explicitly through the scripture and implicitly as the gifts of leaders are applied to a real Uh, to a real people in a local church. And I deny that church leadership is like business leadership, that is, a system of techniques that have outcomes measurable by secular metrics of success, and further deny that merely competent management processes yield the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Again, I think Frank did a a fine job in his affirmations and denials of, of really helping us understand what you know, when we talk about cessationism, what does that mean and what does it not mean? And so, um, you know, the church owes a, a debt of gratitude to uh, Phil Johnson and to Frank Turk and the guys over at the, at the Pyromaniacs blog for, you know, at least interjecting some good biblical, well thought out and reasoned uh, counterpoints to the things we heard uh, from uh, Mark Driscoll. Hopefully we'll, we'll get Driscoll on the program to, uh, you know, to you know, at least ask some of the, you know, the, the tougher counter questions and, uh, and push on some of this. So anyway, that's our edition of fighting for the faith today. Again, it's a, it's a little bit different, but, uh, I felt that this was an important topic that needed to be, you know, hammered out in this way and, uh, would solicit your feedback and would love to get it, uh, especially considering the fact that, you know, I'm a Lutheran, not a Calvinist. And, and maybe I'm missing some of the things that, uh, that, you know, that, really need to be addressed. So if you would like to email me your feedback and your comments, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. 
Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.